Welcome to The Green Investor. I'm Caleb Silver, the Editor-in-Chief of Investopedia and your guide on our journey together into what it means to be a green investor today, how to navigate the terrain of investing vehicles and platforms, and where this investing theme is headed. On the show this week, electric vehicle stocks are in a serious tailspin. We'll do some rubbernecking to survey the damage. And Amy O'Brien, the Global Head of Responsible Investing for Nuveen, joins the show to talk about how the asset manager is trying to help steward its clients' assets towards companies that are working towards socially responsible goals. But first and always, this podcast is for informational and educational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. We will not make recommendations to buy, sell, or hold a particular security or asset, although we may discuss financial products with our guests. Some of our guests may invest in securities mentioned on this podcast. Some of our guests may sell or market securities mentioned on this podcast. But all listeners should do their own research or consult with their financial advisor or broker before making any investment decisions. It's been a very bumpy ride for electric vehicle stocks this year. After a fast start in 2020, which brought many new EV companies to the public markets, the past five months have produced a pileup among most of them. Shares of Rivian, the electric truck maker, have fallen more than 78% this year. Ford, which owns an equity stake in the company worth about 11 or 12%, reportedly sold 8 million shares earlier this week as the lockup period on Rivian shares expired. Amazon, which is also an investor in the company, has yet to receive any of the vehicles it bought from Rivian to electrify its fleet. Rivian said in March that it planned to produce 25,000 electric vans and trucks this year as it wrestles with supply chain constraints and internal production issues. That would be just half the vehicle production it forecast to investors last year as part of its IPO roadshow. Lordstown Motors shares are trading at less than $2 per share, well below their 52-week high of $15.80. And shares of Faraday Future, another EV startup, have lost more than half of their value over the last month, plunging to less than $2 per share. And the big global automakers have been ratcheting up the competition. Ford is coming out with the F-150 Lightning pickup, which has exceeded expectations in advance orders. And Chevy's electric Silverado 2023 is hitting the road soon, promising a 400-mile range on one charge. We can expect a few of these new electric vehicle companies to spin out completely or be acquired by larger competitors or even companies like Amazon.com. Let's do the news. The Earth's average temperature is set to spike above the 1.5 degrees Celsius cap set for post-industrial revolution warming by the 2015 Paris Agreement. That's according to the five-year climate outlook from the World Meteorological Organization. Greenhouse gas emissions have only continued to rise since the pact was signed. The WMO says that there's a 50% chance that the Earth will cross the 1.5 degree threshold sometime in the next five years. Record-breaking heat continues to bake areas of India and Pakistan. Pakistan experienced the hottest month on record in March since records were kept starting in 1961. In the city of Jakababad in Pakistan's Sindh province, temperatures reached 120.2 degrees Fahrenheit just last week. In northwest and central India, the average maximum temperature throughout April was the highest in over a century, according to the Indian Meteorological Department. California's Attorney General Rob Bonta is taking the fight to the oil and gas industry, but over plastics. His office announced an investigation and issued a subpoena to ExxonMobil over its role in the plastics crisis. Bonta said, quote, In California and across the globe, we are seeing the catastrophic results of the fossil fuel industry's decades-long campaign of deception. Plastic pollution is seeping into our waterways, poisoning our environment, and blighting our landscapes. 
According to a press release from his office, he says the truth is the vast majority of plastic cannot be recycled and the recycling rate has never surpassed 9%. Every week, we consume the equivalent of a credit card's worth of plastic through the water we drink, the food we eat, and the air we breathe. According to the complaint, in the 1950s, 1.5 million tons of plastic were produced annually. Today, that number has skyrocketed to more than 300 million tons with plans to increase supply in the coming decade. Uber is stepping up its electric vehicle plans in the UK. The company says that more than 90% of new vehicles joining the platform in London are now fully electric and about 5,000 drivers there are piloting EVs, a number it expects to double by the end of the year. Uber first introduced Uber Green in Paris, which allows riders to book a trip only in a hybrid or an EV. Although early uptake was slow, today 45% of the vehicles on the platform in the French capital are hybrid or fully electric. The Securities and Exchange Commission extended the comment period on its high-profile climate disclosure rule proposal. We talked about that proposal in a recent episode. The proposal was approved March 21st and would require public companies to disclose a long list of climate-related information in their registration statements and periodic reports to the SEC and shareholders. That list includes the oversight and governance of climate-related risks by the registrants board and management, how any climate-related risks identified the company have had or are likely to have a material impact on its business and consolidated financial statements and how any identified climate-related risks have affected or are likely to affect the company's strategy, business model, and outlook. The proposal's common period was slated to close May 20th and will now close June 17th. With $1.3 trillion in assets under management, Nuveen swings a pretty big bat as far as money managers go, and it's been in the game since 1898. Today, it's wholly owned by TIAA, the Teachers Insurance and Annuity Association of America. Its portfolio includes mutual funds, ETFs, including 12 ESG-related ETFs, private equity, farmland, fixed income, and several other asset classes, and it takes its responsible investing Seriously. Amy O'Brien is the global head of responsible investing at Nuveen, and she's been in the SRI and ESG arena her whole career. She's also our guest on The Green Investor this week. Welcome, Amy. Thanks, Caleb. It's great to be here with you. Well, your job title kind of speaks for itself, but I'm sure there's lots of nuances there in terms of what you do at Nuveen. How would you describe what you do? Yeah, well, so my job, which has certainly evolved over the 17 years I've been at this company, has really been about bringing together the responsible investing framework across the entire enterprise. And currently that framework uh, consists of how we integrate environmental, social, and governance, ESG factors into the investment process, how we flex our voice in the market through our stewardship activities, you know, voting, engaging with companies and other investees, and then how we're measuring and managing impact, which has become a pretty significant concept in the whole field of responsible investing and sustainable finance, you know, in recent years. Right. So what does responsible investing mean for Nuveen? You're privately held, so you really have to answer to TIA and your clients and the people that invest through you, including a lot of teachers. But when we say responsible investing, it means a lot of things to a lot of different companies, but I think it means something very unique at Nuveen. Yeah, for sure. And I, and I think the, the definitions vary and people can get lost in the jargon. But you know what it just means at its core is about you know being better investors. And this is by incorporating ESG factors into our our investment process, again, using our influence in the market to drive better performance longer term with our companies and, and in other investees, and then delivering on clients' evolving needs and stakeholder needs, many of which are really oriented around environmental and social objectives. And we have been in the space for a long time, Caleb, and I would say that original TIA client base 
is the key reason why TI and Nuveen have had a focus on this for a long time. I'd say those original investors who worked at higher education, nonprofit institutions, research organizations, were really focused on the environmental, social, and governance aspects of their portfolios for, for many decades before this became popular. Yeah, so in terms of climate and and the E part of ESG, the environmental part of it, what do your clients really want when it comes to that? Yeah. So that's a great um, example. Is that the way that that theme plays out across all asset classes is really manifested through this, the climate theme. So they want a lot of things. I mean, they want, in terms of broadly speaking, they want to make sure that we as their investment manager are accurately assessing climate risk in the portfolio, managing that risk. And there's, you know, a growing focus on the physical risk, the transition risk as the world, you know, commits to things like net zero and, and different client objectives around that. So they want they want that from us, but they also want us to make sure that we're focused on the opportunities that arise from tackling some of these environmental and, and social challenges. So across the board, our clients are looking for us to be just good stewards of their capital. But beyond that, you know, we have a growing number of clients who have very particular objectives for their portfolio. Some clients, you know, individual investors or even institutions do want to limit exposure to say certain industries that are heavy emitters. Others want us to be a partner with them in investing in transition. So a lot of this happens through our real estate or infrastructure portfolios. And others, you know, are expecting us to really help shape the regulatory environment, which is really all over the place. But investors like us are in a key position to help connect the dots on how regulation should evolve, you know, going forward on this topic. And you make it very clear that you're an active manager of funds. You're engaging with the companies in the industries rather than necessarily divesting, although that's probably an option with some of the ETFs. But give us an example of how you're putting that active management into practice with a particular company or industry. Yeah, I really love that question because, you know, for a long time, large investors like us have been scrutinized around you know, how are we influencing companies? And so we can certainly take all these factors and put them into portfolio. Certain portfolios you know, may, may result in exclusion, but a bigger role and a responsibility we take seriously is engagement. And so we, over the years, have always pursued a very active dialogue approach with our, with our companies. We've organized as a company around key issues, key campaigns, but really focusing in on the business case, of course, for why companies should be uh, really paying attention to things like women on boards, diversity on boards, and now climate. So one of our more recent engagement initiatives that builds upon many years of engaging on climate is to get very focused on the company's commitments to net zero. Like, what does that mean in practice? What kind of disclosure? What kind of transparency? But we recently uh, revamped our whole stewardship report, which is a way that we are being accountable to our clients, but also other stakeholders. So you can see, you know, we're not just going and having a conversation with a company anymore. It's targeting companies, uh, really doing digging in, doing the research. You know, we be very specific about requests um, from them, following up, and then being, again, very transparent to our stakeholders. Did our conversations result in change at the company? So I came from the whole shareholder activism background before my role here, and I'm 
thrilled to see the focus and the scrutiny on this part of responsible investing and sustainable finance. Yeah, well, your stewardship report, which you mentioned earlier, details a lot of your initiatives in responsible investing. For our listeners who have yet to read it, I checked it out. We're going to link to it in the show notes here. But what are the top two or three takeaways? You're on that as well as the CEO. So it's not just like this thing off to the side. It's you and the CEO of Nuveen putting this out together along with your teams. Yeah, and I think so. Listen, let's let's talk about one of the maybe the, the the less explicit takeaways is this really matters to our company, right? Our approach is to work. My team, you know, of over thirty people now, working hand in hand with investment leaders to design these initiatives to not just have us our team talking to to companies, but promote all of this throughout all of our analysts and portfolio managers. So you know, hopefully, what comes across in that report is is our commitment to using our influence, but also we have. Believe that we've taken stewardship to the next level when it comes to you know our disclosure, our whole approach, you know how we're targeting companies around not just not generic conversations, right? And, and I think interesting, Caleb, we have more companies coming to us than ever because. They want to make meaningful change. They know these things matter to stakeholders and and investors. And so what we've had to do is be very explicit about targeting, change the way we we report out and be accountable to to our stakeholders. And I think very specific, there's no longer any kind of generic conversation you should produce a sustainability report, right? It's really, you know, what targets are you setting? You know, how are you putting those, like digging into the business case? So I, I just say the rigor around those engagements is pretty intense. Well, you got over a trillion dollars in assets under management. You're a very important voice in proxy voting, where as a shareholder, you have a pretty big megaphone to try to steer change among the companies or industries you invest in. So we're in that season right now. What are some of your key proxy initiatives as they relate to climate change and global warming this year? Yeah. So one, one of the key things that, you know, when we have produced a proxy season preview for the past couple of years, kind of share our thoughts. And then, of course, we'll be producing annually our, our stewardship report and which now includes a detailed description of how we vote on every shareholder proposal at the S&P 500. So because it, it becomes very nuanced, but we're seeing, you know, some interesting, I would say, hybrid uh, proposals this this year and the way we approach things. So, you know, used to have governance proposals, social proposals, environmental proposals. We're seeing people making links between the board of directors and their climate knowledge at large companies. You know, so we're really looking at those hybrid proposals very, very closely. Those are the conversations we're, we're having. There's a big governance push, you know, in terms of companies' political contributions, the political voice. Like, so there's like a G uh, overlap with this as well. So, you know, again, our approach has been, you know, we're looking at everything very carefully. We, we vote over 10,000 meetings every year. And of course, everything involving a shareholder proposal, key director votes, we're doing everything, you know, case by case. I was talking to our proxy voting team yesterday. We have 1,600 votes over the next two two meetings over the next two weeks. It's, it's that heavy season. And this doesn't happen in a bubble. We're looking right now at a, at a market where commodities have been really the leaders here, energy stocks, energy prices are sky high. That's the leadership in the market right now. Very tough time to be a green investor when you look at what's happening these days. But how are you navigating that when the returns are really in the so-called dirty industries, but you're an active investor, so you don't necessarily turn your back on it. You're trying to engage with these companies. Give me a sense of how this is all playing out in the midst of this commodity bull market we're facing. Yeah. So our whole approach has to be multifaceted. 
So, of course, we're looking at how we use our influence. I mean, this is a long-term topic for the world and for investors. I mean, when one thing, you know, earlier this year when we had the invasion of Ukraine, like there were a lot of people looking at, hey, will large institutional investors pull back on, on their commitments to net zero, this energy transition? You know, what is the role of the large energy companies versus, say, a greater focus on renewables? But I think the toolkit on, on this topic in particular, climate climate is pretty multifaceted. So of course we continue to engage, continue to be invest, invested in, you know, large energy stocks. You know, that's our fiduciary duty. Uh, but at the same time, working hand in hand with those companies to really understand their transition plan, you know, oh, that we're going to need these large companies to be part of the solution. Of course, we're going to need the pure play, the, the smaller, more innovative companies. And so we have to be you know, in dialogue on that. We're weighing in heavily on a lot of the emerging SEC proposals on disclosure because we've experienced these topics from so many angles from the public and private markets. And so our playbook remains the same, even in this market. And, and I think you know, one thing individual investors should think about is, you know, ESG sort of analysis and how that's thought about versus you can only have the pure companies in your portfolio because that's that's really not I mean there are strategies like that but you know ESG has become much more than a product line and you know and I think I said we need these large companies these heavy emitters to be part of the solution so we certainly are, are not shunning them um, and and we're you know could, we just deepen the engagement at these at these periods in the market yeah when you're the size you are at Nuveen and you're managing money for so many people families and teachers and former teachers in addition to other retail investors, you can't ignore what's going on in these major industries. Let's, I'm glad you brought up the SEC. What is missing in your point of view on the regulatory front? We know the SEC has extended the comment period for climate disclosures. This is a new thing they're trying to get companies to do. Europe and other countries are much further along. What do we need here in the US for much more direct engagement with companies and much more transparency, which I know is core to what you do? So we, we, I mean, we certainly do need better data. What we're experiencing on the regulatory front is a very specific approach by the SEC contrasted to what we're seeing coming out of Europe. So the SEC is focusing a lot on individual company disclosure, where in, in Europe, you know, we're, we're facing uh, new types of reporting at the fund level that don't actually match up with the data that's available, you know, in, in the market. And so we need targeted disclosure. We need better information. I mean, we're looking very, we're, we're glad about the extension of the deadline because, we, you know, we take a very holistic view of these and try to have a balanced approach. Again, it gets back to my point about how we would vote right on high profile shareholder proposals. We have to be mindful of what we need as investors. I mean, do we do we need better scope one and two information? Of course, like we agree with the SEC that you know companies should be required to report this data as industry methodologies already exist. And many companies voluntarily provide this anyway. So sometimes it's a head scratcher when there's pushback because a lot of companies, frankly, are out ahead of regulators on these topics. But we have to make sure there's no unintended consequences coming out of these proposals as well. And things like such a burden, uh, perhaps, on the, re the reporting requirements that may deter companies from making commitments. And the other thing that this brings up, right, is I've never seen in, in my career 
the combination of the ESG people, the investment people, and then engaging with legal risk compliance. I mean, we all have to find a meet, you know, a, a meeting ground on a lot of these topics and, and what's appropriate. So I think this has helped, you know, advance the conversation, right? I mean, certainly like government's taking action and the community needing to respond, but we do have to be careful sometimes of going too far or unintended consequences. And so you'll see, you know, our comment letter, we, you know, everything's public and we're just working thoughtfully on our reply right now. Nuveen manages a lot of farmland. A lot of folks may not know that, but you're one of the biggest farmland managers in the country. That requires a lot of energy to maintain, obviously. How does responsible investing play into that management of all this farmland? And and we know it's a pretty big asset here in the United States. I'm glad you brought that up, that question, because you know, a lot of focus in the States now has been the public markets and ESG. But Nuveen has a very large you know, alternatives book in real estate, agriculture, you know, infrastructure. And there, you know, we outright own assets. We own land, right? We own buildings. And so our experience with sustainability and how that kind of grew up on the alternative side is frankly, sometimes, you know, it's how we were informed on the public market side. But we are directly involved. I mean, we have made the business case about why you need to have sustainability practices built into the management. I was just out in California where we have uh, this last week where we have a lot of vineyards <laughs> and we grow a lot of grapes and, and other crops. And the detail and the precision around soil health and irrigation and the way that you improve crop yields and how you engage with the worker. I mean, like we are living these topics as an outright owner of some of these assets. So that that has an impact on us across our, our whole approach because we, we are on the ground, you know, working with operators, making the business case for sustainability for, you know, not just the farmland, but again, real estate, our infrastructure, you know, our, our renewable business. And, and so we, we got to really get to touch and feel uh, these issues, you know, as a manager in, in ways that I don't think the others do. Right. And the, you, what you don't want is stranded assets. That's a lot of farmland. That's a lot of asset on your books, so to speak. And if not managed properly, that's not going to be a very worthwhile asset going forward. So it makes sense that you're involved on the ground level there. In terms of what you think is missing in terms of the conversation around responsible investing as it relates to climate and the environment. What's nobody talking about, Amy, that folks need to be paying attention to now? We have to start talking about how we're going to invest in in the solutions. I, I think one thing that frustrates me over the years, I think we made progress, but I think for many and those perhaps who have been on the sidelines looking at our industry um, and not kind of begun to engage, it still isn't, like, we're still about making judgment calls on what we should or shouldn't invest in. And so I, I think what's, you know, what's missing from the conversation, we have to focus on, on the data. But I, I feel like we, as an industry, we have a unique moment in time here to converge, to, to really, I'm not saying everybody has to do everything the same way, but more focus and clarity about what sustainable finance or responsible investing is, is trying to achieve. And then the options for, and I think a lot of what's missing also is the way in which we bring clients along the journey. I mean, at this point, maybe a client would they're not already in some kind of ESG strategy. They might ask an advisor, hey, I've heard about this. Should, should I be in it or not? And you know, we, we know probably where some of those conversations go. And then lastly, I think what's missing is, you know, me, I'm a practitioner. I've been in the institutional side for 26 years now. 
we need to begin to adjust our language with you know, how to reach that retail investor. I, I think we all have a very practitioner speak way of, about this right now. And so I think some better better engagement with that end client will, will just drive more interest in our field. It's an alphabet soup of acronyms out there. We try to unpack the acronyms here on The Green Investor. So what can we expect from Nuveen in the next two to three years as it relates to responsible investing, but really climate and green or that E part of the ESG? What's coming out besides the, the ETFs? We're looking across the platform, you know, what are some new strategies that we can bring to clients, particularly on the alternative side, but but building out a broader set of products. And again, those climate objectives, if you unpack them, they're, you know, low carbon, carbon transition, carbon negative, like, you know, firms that have set or, you know, who might want to have a negative emitting type product, if you will, maybe coming from perhaps our timber portfolio. And so we will continue to build out the right solutions, the right advice for clients on that. And I know this is about the green investor, but, you know, we are looking ahead at the S and ESG as well. We've all been living through the S and ESG over the past couple of years, particularly with the pandemic, the social justice movement in this a renewed one in this country from two years ago. People have experienced, you know, workplace issue. I'd be mean, like, like every possible way, you know, personally. So we know that a lot of clients are thinking about what's the next big issue. And we do believe it, it is around inclusive growth as a way to organize, you know, across the platform here at, at Nuveen. And so definitely more on, on the climate. I mean, we, TIA, our parent has uh, set the net zero carbon goal by 2050. And so we're not just saying we're off of this to clients externally, but you know, we're eating our own cooking on that. And as we work our way through the detailed implementation that's required to achieve that kind of goal for such a large portfolio, we're going to be very vocal in the market, sharing our lessons learned and, you know, I think really dialing up on, on the thought leadership front because we all need to, uh, you know, learn from each other here on this journey. Amy O'Brien, the Global Head of Responsible Investing for Nuveen, thanks so much for joining The Green Investor. We really appreciate it. Thanks, Caleb. It's been a pleasure. It's time for Green Facts, that part of the show when we dig into new and interesting facts, figures, and products in the world of green investing. This week, we're forging into the world of green steel, and there's a great article on Bloomberg Green that breaks this down in great detail. We're going to link to it in the show notes. The steel industry is a $1.1 trillion market, and it's also one of the dirtiest industries on the planet. It is expected to grow by almost 4% a year by the year 2030, according to industry estimates, as we continue to build new vehicles, skyscrapers, wind turbines, bridges, and just about everything else. Well, green steel isn't much different than regular steel, but the way it's produced is. Traditionally, steel is produced by heating iron ore with coking coal in a blast furnace at ultra-high temperatures around 600 degrees Celsius or 2900 degrees Fahrenheit. But new projects in the pilot stage are using green hydrogen produced from renewable electricity instead of burning coal to produce the heat. Some projects are even trying to use biomass as an alternative fuel source. Biomass can be anything from wood, wood chips, or pellets, crops like corn, switchgrass, and sugar cane, as well as food, human, and animal waste. Many of the largest steelmakers in the world are leading some of these projects, including Sweden's SSAB. It says it has produced what it is calling the first fossil-free steel using green hydrogen. Volvo Group bought the first delivery and turned it into a dump truck, which it unveiled back in October. India's ArcelorMittal plans to build an iron ore processing plant unit in Spain by 2025 that will use green hydrogen, and Rio Tinto Group, the world's top iron ore producer, has begun a pilot process 
project that uses plant matter or biomass as a replacement for coking coal to produce low-emission steel, according to Bloomberg. Green steel costs a lot more green to produce, of course, because it uses more expensive production methods. The premium could be as much as 30% higher, according to a 2018 study, although the recent spike in carbon and fossil fuel prices may have reduced that premium for now. So while steel demand and production will continue to increase, the means of producing it could get a lot greener in the future. It's time to play Unpack the Acronym, that part of the show when we deconstruct the alphabet soup that is green investing. This week's acronym, the GEF, or Global Environment Facility. The GEF is an independent financial organization that provides grants to developing countries for projects that benefit the global environment and promote sustainable livelihoods in local communities. According to the GEF's website, it supports developing countries' work to address the world's most pressing environmental issues around five focal areas, biodiversity loss, chemicals and waste, climate change, international waters, and land degradation, and it takes an integrated approach to support more sustainable food systems, forest management, and cities. The members of the GEF Secretariat are ministers of finance, the environment, and other government leaders from countries all over the world. Financial contributions by donor countries are provided via several trust funds administered by the World Bank acting as the GEF trustee and serviced by a functionally independent secretariat housed at the World Bank. The CEO and chairperson of the GEF is Carlos Manuel Rodriguez, the former Costa Rican environment and energy minister. If you're curious about where the GEF is allocating its funds, check out the website at ungcc.int. We'll link to it in the show notes. We'll go out, as we always do, with a look at this week in environmental history. And on May 10th, 1872, the General Mining Act was signed by U.S. President Ulysses S. Grant. The law, which is largely unchanged to this day, still allows hard rock mining claims on federal lands for as little as $5 per acre and leaves U.S. taxpayers responsible for cleanup of abandoned mine sites. That law needs some review. Let's do a tour for this week since we have something pretty cool to celebrate. It was on May 11th, 1820 that the HMS Beagle was launched to sea. It carried a young naturalist named Charles Darwin to the Pacific on its second survey voyage of 1831 to 1836. In 1859, Darwin would publish On the Origin of Species, describing the insights into natural selection and evolution that he gained on those voyages. Let's give it up for Charles Darwin. He's a big deal in my house. Thanks for joining us this week, and special thanks to Amy O'Brien from Nuveen for coming on the show. Check out the show notes for links to all the reports we mentioned, and you can find those wherever you listen to this podcast and on investopedia.com slash the Green Investor Podcast. Rate, review, and recommend us if you like the program, and send us feedback at podcasts at investopedia.com. Keep it green, and we'll talk again real soon. <laughs>